Welcome to the Class of 1987 podcast. I'm your host, Tim Harkness. On this podcast, we will be speaking with members of the Yale College Class of 1987 about their lives, where they've been, where they are now, and where they are going. We plan to cover a wide range of topics and have people who represent the full range of our class's experience. The class of 1987 is the best class that Yale College has ever had, and we're here to celebrate that. So sit back and listen to what your classmates have to say. And welcome to our next episode of the Y87 podcast. With me is our classmate, Umberto Hasso. Hi, Umberto. How are you? Fine, Tim. How are you? I am good. I am good. So where are you and what are you up to these days? Well, I am in Mexico City. I've been here for the last 30 years, basically, uh, since 1989. Well, basically a couple of years after we graduated. I worked for government for a couple of decades, and I've been this last decade working as president of the Mexican Sugar Chamber that represents the sugar businessmen in, in Mexico. It's a big sector here. And I'm also vice president for foreign trade of the National Agricultural Council in Mexico. So in a nutshell, that's what I'm doing here. My wife is from Mexico City. My two kids are 14 and 16. They're both boys, great teenagers. <laughs> and uh, well, it's, it's rough raising them in Mexico City. <laughs> yeah, I bet, I bet. It's always an adventure. Having teenagers is is a whole different occupation. Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's like that's the full-time job. And then the real job is, you know, it's kind of something you, you, you have to do. Mm-hmm. So basically, in a nutshell, that's where I am right now and where I've been the last 35 years since we left college. So how did you get into agricultural businesses? When I worked for the Mexican government for 22 years, no? I got involved into a lot of agricultural issues because I was part of the NAFTA negotiations in the, in the early 1990s. We were young and exploitable and could do 26 hour a day shifts. No? So I really got to know a lot of products and a lot of sectors and do a lot of things in trade. And uh, then when Mexico, went, I went on to negotiate together in the Mexican team for many other areas of the world, including Latin America, including free trade agreement between Mexico and the European Union, which was signed in, finished in 1999, finished in 2000. And along all those years in the trade ministry, I worked with a lot of sectors, the auto sector, I I was involved in regulating that too. But you can never be involved in trade negotiations worldwide without touching the very sensitive agricultural sector because farmers are sensitive everywhere. So I guess that at some point in time, you know, they, they uh, decided in the sugar industry that, they, that it was interesting for them to have someone with my trade profile involved in working for them. So that's how I got here, no? So what was it like working on the NAFTA negotiations way back when? This is the first NAFTA, correct? No, no, no. It was the first NAFTA. There were, there were no emails. <laughs> we used fax machines. <laughs> <laughs> we, I, I literally carried proposals, no, uh, thousands of what we call tariff lines with trade statistics on paper and in, in very, very old computers, you know, the, the first Excel sheets. It was very intense. It was very intense and it was an extraordinary uh, learning experience back then because 
things have changed a lot uh, between Mexico and the U.S. and the way we see each other now. Incredibly, you look at the internet and kids, you know, learn about what's happening in the U.S. and vice versa. People in the U.S. know about what's happening in Mexico more than when we were in college. But back then, we were just trying to visualize how to open up a relationship. It's a trade relationship, but if it, you go, but if you involve t- telecommunications, you're opening up much more than trade. If it involves transportation, you're opening up a lot more than trade. I mean, even there was a mentality change. You know, Mexico was very inward-looking back then in terms of of its political views and in, in terms of its economic and and cultural ties with the U.S., very nationalistic. And it turned out that as a result of this experience, we learned a lot. Oh, my relatively bicultural experience of having been at Yale really helped build bridges, you know, so that we could communicate in this NAFTA negotiating team. Because understanding how Americans think was very crucial, I think, for, for our teams, and I could do my bit in that part. So what were the differences? What were the main mentality differences back then, and how have those changed now? The commitment, well, up until President Trump came along, long-term perspective in Mexico meant something very different than long-term perspective in the U.S., no? Mm-hmm. Even with Trump and the new USMCA, things have been very stable with the United States because the American mentality is very rules-oriented, legally structured. And so Americans expected seriousness in terms of what was committed and the long-term prospects of it being uh, complied with, no? That's what they, uh, may, they mainly wanted, was a long-term rules-based system. And trying to understand that from the Mexican point of view back then, because we used to have this Latin American association, and always said, well, you know, you can negotiate this, but tomorrow you can, ah, you can, you know, move it around a little and then tweak it and then tweak it around and then move it around. And that that was how things worked in our neighborhood. And and it turns out that for the investor, the long-term investor, the American-based system is, is what has been very successful for Mexico economically in these last decades. So that that was a very important point, no? It, to understand what what Americans wanted and and for to try to explain to Americans what Mexicans uh, felt, no? There was a lot of a lot of nationalism back then. Part of it is coming back now uh, about the oil industry being belonging to Mexicans and and all these uh, the minerals and natural resources belonging to Mexicans. And this had gone away until uh, recently. It hasn't come back as it has in the past, but it, trying to understand the sensitivities of the Mexican perspective was something in which we could kind of, I could at least try to explain to Americans where we were coming from. So were there particular aspects of your college experience that, that gave you that? It's more than a translator role because it's not about the language oh. as much as it is the culture, right? So yes. You know, uh, were there parts of the educational experience in the classroom, in the dining hall, wherever that were really important to you? Yes, yes. And and let me tell you, Tim, because uh, one of the things that happened when I first entered the ministry and when the NAFTA was being lobbied, lobbied to enter into negotiations, is that I remember this very clearly this one day when the minister had this speechwriter that wrote speeches in Spanish. And he wrote beautifully. But it turned out that those speeches translated into English did not go through 
to the American businessman, to, to the American farmer, the American rancher, the American salesman, the American a politician, the American, I mean, they, they just didn't go through. And at one point in time, I spent an, a whole all night trying to rewrite the speech in English that would be understandable and interesting to an American. And that's when you start to realize how much of what you were asking of the Yale experience really helped in trying to understand what it is all about, in trying to communicate with Americans. And I would say that incredibly, just being in the dining hall was, was more important than anything else in the Yale experience, just talking to people, just seeing what they thought and seeing how people can express different points of view and how people are very pragmatic and how people are go to the point. They don't go around in circles most of the time. Things like that, being in the dorm, being in the dining hall, being in the library, just trying to live how an American lived and to see what Americans thought were important. Looking at the protests or the issues in the Yale Daily News was also crucial because you need to know what's important to Americans if you want to talk to them. So how have you maintained the cultural touch point? Because it seems like you still have that role. In a way, yes, because in, <laughs> in, in the sugar business, we're right, I mean, we just negotiated some private sector. With the Department of Commerce, we signed an agreement as a, the Mexican private sector, part of this anti-dumping law, that mm -hmm. this trade law in the United States that, that we deal with. So I still keep negotiating with Americans, even in, in this role. And I can understand. It, it's difficult for me just to give you an, an example. I have to deal with beet growers in the border Canada, with cane growers that are in Louisiana, and, and then some refineries that are very sophisticated in Miami. So just trying to understand that America is different. That just as we have differences within Mexico, there are huge differences in the way you talk to a guy from Montana than the way you talk to a guy from Louisiana, than the way you talk to a Cuban-born sugar industrialists in Miami are all very different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Something that we lived for granted when we were at Yale. People were from different backgrounds and we needed to understand that you needed to speak in, in terms that everyone understood, no? Because we're all, all different, no? Yeah. Well, that was one of the fun parts, I thought. Of, exactly. of meeting all these people. It was just, it was intimidating, at least for me, at the very beginning, the first week, I was thinking, this is exciting and intimidating. And then sort of the intimidation went away. I realized everyone felt something like what I was feeling. And then just all these different people. I thought it was great. Yes, yes. So what was it like to negotiate with Europeans as opposed to Americans? I find that very interesting. Yes, that's a very interesting experience because the the inner workings of the European Commission is like being inside a monastery, you know, with all these monks having all these rules. You no, know? mm. but Europeans in general, in order to be together, they need to be able to do two things. They need to be able to have some principles, you no, know, that they all agree to, but then they need the particularities that every country needs. The Europeans are less assertive and less clear in how they ask concessions from you. Americans are very blunt. I mean, President Trump is the extreme <laughs> example of how blunt you can get in asking someone for concessions and, you know, I need this because I need that. Europeans do not work that way. Yeah. They, you know, they kind of move around in circles and they kind of hint to you and they kind of act strongly on certain principles, but then they want the exceptions, but then they, they try to get through. And it's very difficult working with them. At the end of the day, I personally ended up working with them in the informal channels. 
in the informal channels is the only way you could get a direct a direct feeling of what they wanted and what you wanted from them very different from uh, from americans americans yeah. are the bluntest negotiators i have ever met no they could they're not americans are, are not afraid of asking for what they want no that's true that is definitely true and they're not afraid of saying no <laughs> when you ask something from them <laughs> certainly <laughs> So let me ask you this, and, and I find it interesting in the agricultural sector because it's such a personal industry. I mean, because you, you look at the farmer from the person working the land all the way to the consumer, it's very, there are a lot of hands that touch uh, products, and then ultimately the product that gets delivered to the consumer is very, it's like on people's tables or it's in the food that they eat. So, you know, has your view of free trade and the rules that govern it changed over time? Yes, of course. When you're young, the concept of free trade is exists. <laughs> now, the NAFTA was never really complete free trade. Now, there, there was a lot of industrial policy involved in there. Just the fact that you have trade between three countries liberalized in terms of tariffs doesn't mean that, for example, the entire U.S. Farm Bill, if you know the $30 billion that the U.S. spends on agricultural support programs, they didn't change because of the of the NAFTA nor the USMCA. They were kept intact. So really, free trade, as you read it in textbooks, does not exist. No, it's it has never existed and probably won't. The thing is that you have freer trade. You have uh, producers making wiser choices because they have wider markets, and maybe they decide to import something instead of producing it, and things get more rationalized. And that I think summarizes my the way my thinking on free, on free trade has evolved during the years. It's like trying to have freer markets and to make businessmen more able to sell their products and buy products than it used to be before. So you, you have, instead of Mexico wanting to have grapes in summer, which is ridiculous, you import them from some part of California during that part of the year. and. And whatever not, no, you, you, uh, winter vegetables are produced in Mexico mostly these days, which makes sense. It's snowing in the United States. No, you, you don't grow vegetables every day more grown in Mexico, but it's never completely free. It's never completely hands off by the governments. And that's something you learn w with experience and with reality, no? Political reality. Yeah, that's definitely true. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you are enjoying the conversation. As you listen, please think about acknowledging the generosity of our guests for sharing their lives. Leave a comment, tell a friend, post about what you've heard on social media, maybe sign up to be a guest yourself. The discussions we have on this podcast are made all the richer with your participation. Now, back to the conversation. So are there areas of cooperation that you think in the future between the United States and Mexico people should be focusing on? Yes, I can think of lots of areas of cooperation. In general, the U.S., compared to the Europeans, and you were asking about them, they don't like cooperation. They like drafting a legal text, leaving it to businessmen, and then letting things run, no? They don't want government programs and government-run activities, you know, promoting and whatever not, no? They, they leave that to the states, no? Mostly the states are the ones that mm -hmm. get involved in that. But the U.S. federal government doesn't want to get entangled in many things. But I do think that there are many areas of cooperation that go beyond trade. Beyond trade, because I think right now it's more evident than ever that trade and the 
tremendous problems related to immigration, guns, drugs are all mixed up, are all mixed up. And it's very important that we deal with them comprehensively. And that is something that in general, neither the Mexican side, of course, nor the U.S. side has undertaken. No, you know, say, well, let's try to figure out the way we're going to solve our, our entire relationship in, you know, in one table or this problem here, that problem there. And, you know, we do have a lot of things that we can focus on. But each agency has its own agenda. Each problem has its own volume. And it's a huge relationship across the board. Mm-hmm. But if you think of a comprehensive agenda in which the two populations or the three populations of North America try to figure out how to get along better economically, socially, and dealing against illegal activities, then I think a lot could be done. A lot could be done. You know, I know Yale has had over the years a cooperation with Monterey Tech and other Mexican educational uh, institutions that are seen as being excellent, you know, as well. And so are there areas of cooperation like that, do you think, that are worthwhile? And are there things that classmates should be, could be doing personally in their lives to have more of a relation with cultural institutions or educational institution in Mexico? So I've just asked a lot. So no, 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 no. You can take the the Monterey Tech, and I'm from Monterey, no, in in the northeastern Mexico. it, It used to have one campus in Mexico. And in the last 30 years, it decided to build campuses all over Mexico. And, and even take classes online. And that particular institution was not well seen by the government because it was like people from there made money, no? So they were bad people, no? It, it, was, it was kind of like that. It was the poor are good, the, like Maoist mentality, no? Mm-hmm. Public universities have good people, public universities have bad people. And in the last three decades, and partly because of uh, the relationship that changed between the US and Mexico, in a great deal because of that, and because of the technological change, the tech had a complete, complete explosion in terms of growth and in terms of quality and in terms of international relationships. The tech, which was where 90% of my high school classmates went to school, which is where you were supposed to go if you were from Monterey, it has become a completely new globalized institution. And they have taken advantage together with U.S. institutions of these great opportunities. So all this cooperation I think it's, it's possible because we have an open, a more open mentality now on both mm-hmm. sides of the border, and we have realized that we, we can learn from each other. So how did you get to Yale? If everyone was supposed to go to Monterey Tech, how, do you, how did you get there? You wouldn't believe me. I can still remember the day when I walked to the counselor and I told her, well, I want to study abroad in the United States. I want to go to college. Because only U.S.-born kids went to, at the American school, all, only U.S born kids, I mean, or U.S. kids went to the United States for college. Everyone else went to state in Mexico. So I went there and I asked to, you know, what do I need to do to apply as a Mexican? You know, what are the universities in the U.S.? Back then we didn't have internet. I mean, in the Mexican mail takes three months, <laughs> takes three months still <laughs> for a letter to get it around. I remember driving to Texas to post my college applications, not in the U.S. Really? Mail. Yeah, yeah, I had a little, so, three, four hour drive. It was a different world. So how did I end up there? People have asked me that. And my dad was a professor at the Monterey Tech. And he had, because of that, he he was one of the few that had heard of what the huge wealth of educational resources available on the other side of the border, so to speak. So he said, well, you know, 
try putting aside this little town mentality, you know, for college and try exploring what's out there. It, it was a big step by, back then, huge step. I can't imagine. And so I did. And that's how I ended up at Yale. No, it was. So how did you prepare? I mean, you're going from a warm place to a cold place. You're going from, you know, a place that, you know, everyone is from Mexico or most everyone is from Mexico to a place that has where you're going to be in the minority. Like, how did you think about that? Well, or did you just go and you didn't think about it? No. It's, it's like when you get on a plane and they over and over, they give you this, the safety rig. <laughs> What's this going to be a crash landing? It's going to be a crash landing. No, <laughs> Forget all this no, about the, the things falling from the top. No, 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 no. no. It, it, it was a crash landing. There was no way I could even start to prepare for what I was about to experience. I mean, everyone I knew, for example, was Catholic, no? And the first thing you realize is that there are Catholics, but there are, you know, other religions. There are other ethnic groups, other languages, other, I mean, just the cultural shock of that diversity you had there. I'm talking about Mexico 35 years ago, no? Sure, sure. Uh, which was, was even more closed, close-minded than, than today. You don't prepare, you, you just crash land, no? And, and, and see a day at a time until the first snow falls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember the first snowfall and all the people who had never seen snow going out in wonder. And I had grown up in Michigan. We're like, we had buckets of snow. Like, oh, it's snow. <laughs> oh, no, no. You understand what the term duck boot was all about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what were the biggest surprises? I mean, well, the weather. I mean, I, I remember walking to breakfast to Commons. No, and, and I felt like Dr. Shivak. Like, what am I doing <laughs> to get some scrambled eggs <laughs> like i have to walk. it felt like I mean, the movie was not that old back then no? so it was like it was like this is terrible having to walk through all this below zero it, that was a surprise the weather was a surprise it more importantly less light is a surprise also no it changes mood mm -hmm. but the dining hours no people having dinner at five you know that was completely unheard of no <laughs> and, and what was it? That's by, true. By seven, it was over. Was it? Uh, I mean, I don't know. But it wasn't open at eight thirty or nine. No, we had to go to the pizza place in the Giros and then all that. No, <laughs> at midnight. I mean, everything from eating habits, the food you ate, the climate you were in, the dorm experience. Everything was totally new. Everything was totally different than 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 what I had lived in before. No. And it was quite an experience. I mean, it was till I think about it and I say, well, I cannot synthesize all this, no? You you know, you the catchphrase is diversity, whatever, no? But it's, it transmits what it all means un, until you try to remember everything. That and how it impacts you, how to hit you, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's different language. It was great, it was great, but it was complex. So if there was something from your childhood in Mexico that, you could have taken to Yale and said, no, no, we're going to do, we'll do everything the Yale way, but there's one Mexican thing. We'll change this. What would it have been? One Mexican thing. You know, one thing that surprised me, because I was in the, in the hospital at DUH in my freshman year. Mm. I had an illness that in Mexico would have been diagnosed immediately, but it, that did not exist in the U.S. for many decades. No, I don't remember what it was. I was at DUH and my parents flew over hmm. and the doctor said, I mean, after a week, said, well, came up to my dad and said, well, sir, I mean, don't you have a job? <laughs> he says, no, well, it, please understand our culture. I mean, we cannot leave a sick kid here. 
without being worried about it. And the doctor, whose name was Dr. Federico, he was Italian. He was of Italian origin, second or third generation. He said, well, I can understand you because my culture is similar. Because here I have kids whose parents are in New York and they're in the, in the hospital for weeks and their parents never come over, no? And it's a cultural thing, no? You're, you're supposed, in the United States, you're supposed to be on your own at 18, no? You're supposed to be grown up and you're supposed to be on your own, no? It's a mentality. And, and I don't know if this kind of answers your question, but I think one of the things that I did take from Mexico was this continued relationship with my family. It was, it, family was a big thing, no? My dad called at 11 a.m. every Sunday, no? Mm-hmm. Or it was 11 p.m. <laughs> Probably 11 a.m. on a Sunday was too early, but it was. Uh, he always called on the same day, on the same night, and and I think that if I were to take one thing from Mexico, put it you know a little bit into Yale life, it was the that concept that I brought from Mexico and I never lost, which is the the value of having a relationship with uh, with family. No, it is different, and it's interesting because uh, Lisa, uh, my wife is of Italian descent. And so we've had the big Sunday dinner, our entire family, entire marriage when we have family. And you know, if I was going to do something different, you know, it would be to take that, like the long leisurely dinner, you know, on a weekend where you're really connecting with everyone around the table. I think that, you know, is something that was really, really important to Lisa and has been important to our children and has been, you know, a bond. So, you know, if our kid was in UH or wherever, whatever they are, she would be on the plane. We would be there and there would be no question. And I think that's right. Cause I don't think everybody I see our children's roommates and college friends, not everyone has that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a cultural shock too. No, it's in Mexico. You always see parents with kids, maybe too much. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the extreme. You, you have a, a family overdose. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the that's the like that's the I find the hard balance as a father is just how much do yeah. you do to help because you want to make things better, and then how much is too much because they have to learn for themselves. Yeah, that's the tough stuff. So we've gotten to the part of our podcast that I call the lightning round. So I'm going to throw a couple questions at you and see if you can get some quick answers here. So sure. number one, what was the most important class you took at Yale? Economics with James Tobin, a Nobel Prize winner. All right. To have a Nobel Prize winner as a professor, as a sophomore, I think was a diamond. Second, I I, I would put Paul Kennedy's classes. I mean, I love them. And they have been very important in my life. Really? Do you still read his books and go back to them? Oh, I think if you were to understand what's going on right now, his theory about economics being the base for the rise and fall of world powers, I mean, I, I go back to what he said, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And, and I mean, look at what is going on in Ukraine. It's yeah, like, I mean, has it, some places are even still the same. No, the topics yeah. are still the same. No, that's true. So, if you were going to tell the our classmates one or two places in Mexico to go to visit, what would you recommend? Oh well, I'm not going to give you the beaches. <laughs> I would suggest you visit the city of Oaxaca. O-A-X-A-C-A, Oaxaca. It's a plateau in the middle of the mountains with a great Indian culture, great food, a great tradition, pyramids. I mean, it's it's extraordinary. It is just extraordinary. And I would add to that the city, probably Merida in the Yucatan Peninsula. It has now uh, revived in terms of the 
haciendas, the estates that were there, and you have the Maya culture, but also the Spanish. I mean, that's a place where presidents meet right now. Let's say the last time Bill Clinton was down here, it was uh, the Yucatan Peninsula. I would suggest those two, if you were, to force me to narrow down to two places, no? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There are many more. <laughs> but those two would stand out. So I hope you can come to our reunion in June. If you could make it, what were the what would be the kinds of things you would want at a reunion? Oh well, I mean, obviously the, the, the catch up with all the friends, you know, and see how they're doing, and just the feeling of being around the same people we were with thirty five years ago is extraordinary. I, I haven't been back since the twenty fifth reunion, mm-hmm. and the dinner which we had was so emotional at Commons. Oh, it was. It was. And we, you know, we got our handkerchiefs out, and I, that kind of emotion is what I'm looking for. That kind of, not not uh, the, the who's where or whatever. Not no, it's the, the emotion of seeing everyone together again and and sharing the same sadness or the same nostalgia or the same uh, melancholy or, or the same feeling. No, it's never just happy. No, it's it's always a mixture of things. Yeah. Well, life is complicated, and I think that at this point in our life, we can share honestly those complications, the happinesses and the sadnesses. Yes, yes, yes. yes. That's so it's certainly, certainly we're mo- we're much wiser than we were forty-five years ago. <laughs> I but certainly hope so. Wiser, you're right. But, uh, I, uh, most people are, and, and and it's great to be able to to share where we the life we had as, stu- as students' life. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak. It's been great. Oh. No, thank you, Tim. I really enjoyed this. Thank you very much. In a world where people were isolated by a pandemic, forced to live their lives remotely in an endless parade of Zoom meetings, one Yale College class dared to break the mold. The Yale College class of 1987 is planning what no Yale College class has ever tried before, at least not for a while. An in-person reunion, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, 2022. We will be gathering in Pearson College. Be there for engaging discussions, nightly revelry, and way too much New Haven pizza, if there ever could be such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask, what do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. One Yale college class dared to break the mold. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale college has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask. What do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there.
That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 Podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.